Well, we turn now to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. We'll read the first half of this chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor, saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants, and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out in the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we continually stand on the edge. We stand, Lord, on the one hand of those who would receive this word as we would receive some sort of lesson, or even worse, those who would tune it out to no profit whatsoever. But Lord, on the other hand, Desire with at least some portion of our hearts that know we would profit from your word. And we earnestly cry out to you that you would enable us to profit from this word. That we would not at all be like Pharaoh in this hardness of heart. And just how soon that the, the force of the word came to him and then left again. But rather, Lord, that you yourself would convince us of that very thing that you were showing to Pharaoh that day that there is no one like the Lord our God. May this be brought home to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now this evening to Exodus chapter 8 and to the second great plague. There is so much that could be said even in this plague. There are 15 verses before us and there are many good things that could be focused on perhaps, but I intend to focus on just one thing, this one statement in verse 10. He said, let it be according to your word. 
that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. This is the great lesson of this second plague. Now, no doubt this is a lesson of all the plagues. This is the lesson of all of Exodus, perhaps. But it is particularly the thing that is highlighted for us in this text, and it is the thing that I intend, with God's help, to impress upon us all. Now, if he says, he said that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, it's not that Pharaoh could respond and say, how do you know this? Pharaoh did not know that. He did not know it. He did not accept it. But he would learn. Because Pharaoh, you see, he lived in a pluralistic world. There were many gods being worshipped in the ancient Near East. The Bible records the names of various of them. We ourselves lose track. If I were to ask you right now, quick, tell me the names of all the false gods that you encounter in the pages of the Old Testament. I don't know how many of us would actually be able to name even all of those. There are many gods being worshipped around him. And there are many gods being worshipped just in Egypt itself. Again, all you have to do is to go to the British Museum and to the Egypt section, and there is a god for this and god for that, a god with, a, with a, the, the, the dog head and a god with a cat head and all the rest of these other kinds of things. Of course, this was a pluralistic world. And, you know, each one of those main principal Egyptian gods had their own high priest, had their own highly developed cult and temple and all the rest of the things that went with it. You recall that Pharaoh himself, another Pharaoh, had given Joseph the daughter of one of these, uh, one of these priests in Genesis 41-45. And Pharaoh gave him, this is Joseph, as wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Why? Because these were high court officials, the ones who were at the, the top of the food chain in the cult of each one of these false gods in Egypt. They were high in the court. And it was suitable then to give one, the, the daughter of one of these to uh, his prime minister. But you know what? Pharaoh outranked all of them. Pharaoh outranked the priest of On and every other priest whether the dog-faced god or the cat-faced god, he outranked them all and every magician Right? He could tell them what to do. He could tell them, these gods, therefore, what they should do, all according to his own plan. All of it was consolidated, although it was pluralistic. It was consolidated under the headship and guidance and leadership of Pharaoh himself, who was regarded again to be divine. That's, of course, the idea behind all the elaborate burial rituals and all the cult that was associated with the Pharaoh in particular. Well, as with this morning, we know, don't we, that the tendency is to make gods in our image. As mentioned on numerous occasions, Calvin said that we, our hearts are like idle factories. There is something about the human heart that just continually turns out idols. And these idols are not the true and living God. These are things that are more or less in our image. And it is inevitably something that we are comfortable with, something that we crucially can control, you see, the gods that we manufacture, these idols. But the real God's not like that. The real God is not one that you can control. And Pharaoh was about to find that out. He was about to find out that there was no one like the Lord. That's the point. That's the title. There is no one like the Lord. And there are three points beneath that. First, the Lord's initiative. Secondly, the Lord's power. And third, the mediator's intercession. The Lord's initiative, 
the Lord's power and the mediator's intercession. So first of all, let's look at the Lord's initiative. I've mentioned that uh, Pharaoh could dream up things that he was going to have his high priest and his magicians do, but the Lord is different than that. Everything happens at his initiative. And this first point is rather simple. It's fairly brief and very straightforward. That as we go through these first few verses in the chapter, I want you to see that Moses and Aaron did not dream these things up. All of this is happening precisely and explicitly at the initiative of the living God. So in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which, you shall, go, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. Well, we're going to mention next that just how pervasive all this is, even into the the kneading bowls, everything. So even is the way it is executed, it is precisely at the initiative of the living God. All of it is according to his plan. In verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So God is giving instructions to Moses in order to give instructions to Aaron, in order for Aaron to to use his instrument, which is his rod, over the, 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 the rivers of Egypt. And again, we know that Pharaoh considered the great river and the tributaries to be his great source of power. And here the Lord is speaking to his servant Moses, who speaks to his servant Aaron, who then relists up his rod against these things. And even the mode by which this happens demonstrates the power of the living God over all false gods. But the point is in all of this, it is absolutely clear who is behind all this work. It is the Lord's initiative. And let me just say again to this clear point, it is no sideshow that God takes initiative in the salvation of man. That is no minor matter. You have to consider the condemnation of of Romans 3.11, that there is none who seeks after God. Have you really considered that? Brothers and sisters, have you really considered Romans 3.11? There is none who seeks after God. Look, that list in Romans chapter 3, it is a a condemnation of all of us. It says that there's none who does good. It reminds us of, of the sin and just how universal is the fall and its effects and so that we're all born in sin and we continue in sin and there's none who follows the, uh, the, the word of God. But Romans 3.11 is the worst of it. Okay, because thus far we could be Arminians. Thus far we could say, look, I know we've been bad. I know we haven't kept the word of God, but at least I know what's good for me. And when the Savior is offered, I can go on my initiative and come to him and receive salvation. But no, you can't. No, you can't. The fall is so complete and so total that there's none who seeks after God. You are born dead in your sins and trespasses, dead, unable to respond, unable to seek, unable to do anything at all. It can only be at the initiative of God. If you are here today as a believer, it is only at the initiative of God. If he has made you to believe in his son, it is because God has called you. No one can come 
to the Father unless, or to the Son unless the Father draw him. There's none who seeks after God. It has to be at his initiative. And the very fact that all these things that we're seeing in all their perfect detail are at the initiative of God and at no man, this is important and significant enough as we learn about our redemption as we learn in Egypt. Well, all of this, first of all, it's at the Lord's initiative. Secondly, it's a demonstration of the Lord's power. We're learning that there is none like the Lord, and we're about to see his power. So in verse 6, Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now, that long and detailed description that is given in verses 3 and 4 is not repeated, but we can be absolutely certain that it happened. You remember, I'll read it again. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up into your house, speaking to Pharaoh, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens. How about that? Just how pervasive these are. Your ovens and into your kneading bowls and the frogs shall come out on you, touch your body, on your people and in all your servants. Psalm 105.30 summarizes it this way, that their land abounded with frogs even in the chambers of their kings. That's right. You know, I use the word pervasive, but actually the first plague, that was pervasive in that it wasn't just the river, but it was all the tributaries and all the standing water, even the things that were in man-made pots and jars anywhere in the land of Egypt, all of that water was turned into blood. And that's pervasive. This, the better word for what happens here in the second plague, a plague is it's invasive. These frogs absolutely invaded everywhere, even into the most private and intimate space, even of the most favored and privileged of the land, such as Pharaoh himself. There is no escape from these frogs, just like there's no escape from the God who sent them. Now in verse 7, it goes on to say, this is the power of the Lord, of course. This is what he can do. And we have this comparison. The Lord doesn't mind that, that Pharaoh is constantly referring to his magicians in order to bring up some sort of facsimile of these things because it's always a pale comparison. And in verse 7 we see it. The magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs from the land of Egypt. Now the question is how mere illusion or something more? Well, the Bible, you know, does not deny at all that there is some supernatural power given to demons. Don't forget about that. The Bible doesn't deny it. The Bible says that demons have this supernatural power and that those who are in contact with these demons because they are witches or wizards or mediums of one sort or another, yes, they have access to some level of supernatural power. Interestingly, Revelation 16.13 says this, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And what are they what are they and what are they going to do? Well they are spirits of demons, performing signs, that means miracles, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth. Who's that? Like Pharaoh. And to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so you see, there is supernatural power. There, is, there are miracles that can be done by demons. But in the hand of God, they are for those who want to be deceived in order to bring them into the further condemnation as they're gathered for the day of the great battle, just as Pharaoh and his forces were gathered for the battle that was about to happen. 
But you know what? So we don't need to we don't need to deny that there was power given to these false gods, power given to these uh, magicians. But the point in Exodus 8 is that, the, that what they did, that their, their display of miracle was absolutely inconsequential in comparison. They brought up frogs, but they did not begin to cover the land of Egypt as the ones from the Lord. You imagine this innumerable mass in every way. Imagine your eye just being overtaken with a sight of frogs moving to cover the whole land. And then maybe you see a small group of frogs, maybe of a different species, making its way up from, from the, the water a little ways longer and from at the, the word of the magicians, and they are as nothing in comparison. They were a drop in the bucket. Why? Because there is no one like the Lord our God, and he makes a distinction between himself and all false gods because he would not share his glory with demons. So in his sovereignty... In his overruling of all things, those who, are, who would be wicked and to be in rebellion against the living God, these demons that are in re- rebellion against the living God and have been since the day of their fall, yes, he permits them to carry on to some extent. But always their power is in a pale comparison with that of God. And moreover, you know, these magicians were unable to do the one thing that was actually needed, not to replicate in some pale shadow some aspect of this miracle. The whole land was already covered with frogs. What are they going to do to that? The main thing that they needed, the main thing that Pharaoh would want, is for them to remove these frogs. This heaving mass of repulsive flesh from the land. And that they could not do. They could not replicate the scale of the miracle in any sense. And they could not undo what the hand of God has done by sending those frogs upon the land. They could do absolutely nothing to alter this one way or another. Why? Because there's no one like the Lord our God. It's a lesson that Pharaoh needed to learn. It's a lesson we need to learn. Now, interestingly, this all must have become very clear, at least to some extent, to Pharaoh. Because in the verses leading up to this chapter of the first plague, you remember how that one ended. It kind of ended with a, 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 you know, not with the way that you'd imagine it to. Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither was his heart moved by it. Well, well, what you know, the land is covered, all the waters turned into blood. Well, I can turn my back on that and go into my house, and I'll have my servants dig for water, and I won't even, it won't even affect me. Well, not this time. He went into his house, and there were frogs there. And he went into his chamber, and there were frogs there. And he goes to even the vessels that would contain water, and there were frogs there. And there was no escape from these things. And God enabled them for him for a brief moment to come to his senses. And we have this admission of defeat in verse 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. It doesn't even seem like there was a huge amount of time elapsed here. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let, my people, let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. There's actually no hardening of the heart at this moment, no pretending that he had the same power at his disposal. That was the game he continually played. If the magicians could do what Moses and Aaron did, then, then he pretended like it wasn't from the hand of the Lord, but he didn't this time. He had been defeated by the unlimited power of the Creator because he, for at least a moment, learned the lesson that there is none like the Lord God. Not one of those, whether the dog face 
God or the cat-faced God or whatever these gods were, they were not able to save him. And he recognized that for a moment as he sees the Lord's power. Well, that was our second point. We see the Lord's initiative. We see the Lord's power. But thirdly, we also see the mediator's intercession. Because there are other ways in which the Lord differs from these false gods. Okay, we understand what, what I've said is that Pharaoh imagined that he was in charge of the, of the priests who in themselves were in various ways in charge of these gods. And so therefore everything could work according to his plan. And we said that God is not like that at all. That God does not work in accordance with our bid and call. But I want us to see that God goes out of his way to show us that he does respond to someone's call. And that someone is the mediator. And this is the the third and final point, the mediator's intercession. In verse 8, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord. He's saying that, entreat the Lord. He understands there there is a mediator uh, relationship involved here that he may take away the frogs from me and my people. And we have this interesting interesting reply from Moses in verse 9. And Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses that they may remain in the, Lord, the river only. Let me just say again that I hope that Pharaoh should have been getting the point, even again with regard to the power of the living God. Because in this, this God's hands, not only was able, he able to create all these frogs which covered the land, he was able to destroy them at the time and place of his choosing. Now, if God could do that with frogs, he probably could do that with people as well. And what you know, he was about to find out that lesson also. But the point is that Moses has said, accept the honor of saying, when I shall intercede for you, because that is what Moses is there to do. He is the one who will intercede because he is the mediator. It's no coincidence, by the way, the timing. This, this just happened to be a profusion of frogs, perhaps, and they gradually go away on their own. No, there had to be a specific time given for their departure so that Pharaoh would, be, would know that there is no one like the Lord. That, that lesson absolutely had to be clear. So you tell me, so you know it's no coincidence, Pharaoh. You pick a time in which I will ask the Lord to, to take away these frogs. And he said, tomorrow. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Here's one of the ironies of this passage. He says, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Speaking of the word of Pharaoh being confirmed as proof of there being no one like the Lord our God. How about that? This, this, this one who is like Satan himself, a picture of Satan, a type of, of the enemy of God, raised, shaking his fist at the living God. He says, your very words that come out of your mouth will actually confirm for you that there is no one like the Lord our God. Amazing. Well, the mode of that happening is, of course, that he is speaking not to God directly, but he is speaking to the mediator who is Moses. Pharaoh is being taught about the power of the living and true God. And although this God absolutely acts on his own initiative and with power that is irresistible and overwhelming, yet in his goodness, he responds to the intercession of a mediator because this is of God's design. This is his plan. This is the covenant-keeping God, let's not forget. 
The whole reason why there is a redemption, the whole reason why there is a, a exodus from Egypt is precisely because God had made a covenant with his people. God had made a covenant with the great-great-grandfather of Moses and all of his, his people, Abraham. And so he is acting in accordance with that. And he is sending a mediator to them, a deliverer to them, in order to stand between, between God and men and to deliver these people. Because they themselves require this intercession. It wasn't as if the people themselves, and, and maybe Pharaoh at some point, thought uh, this, mind, this considered, what's so wonderful about these people? There's nothing different really about them. Well, maybe. God always does make a difference of his people because they, tr- they live in accordance to some extent of his law. And so to the objective and to clear-sighted, there should always be a difference of the people of God as they live differently in the land of Goshen even, even if around them there is in the midst of a wicked and sinful generation. Yet, even with that not, notwithstanding, imagine that there was no other difference We understand that the reason why God so cares about these people is because of his covenant. And because of his covenant, he has sent a redeemer who is Moses. And now God is demonstrating to Pharaoh that it is part of his plan to respond to the words of this intercessor, this mediator, who is Moses. And all that is highlighted in verse 12. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. He's not doing it half-heartedly. He is doing his work as an intercessor. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He did according to the word of Moses. Well, God had sent Moses to be the mediator. Moses was serving in his God-given capacity as the mediator, and therefore the Lord listened. Because even as the Lord is not like these false gods who cannot, they, all they can do is bring out a handful of frogs, whereas the living God can bring out an innumerable company of frogs that covers the entire land. So also that God is different than these other gods. He doesn't respond by bribery. He doesn't respond by incantations and magic. He does not respond by the manipulation of rituals. He responds to the voice of his appointed mediator. And that's truly, truly important for God's people to know. Because you know what? On its own, God's unlimited power would not be good news for us, would it? It wouldn't. God's unlimited power would only mean that he's going to judge us. Unless there was a mediator. And you remember how Job cried out in in precisely this way. As he is faced with the reality of being crushed by the hand of God and his power. God reached out his hand against Job, you remember. All of his children, all of his flocks, all of his herds, these were destroyed in a moment of time. By the elements and by the Sabaeans which God had sent ultimately. Yes, Satan stirred him up to it. But God's hand was upon this man Job and he could not withstand it. He did not have the power to withstand it. And he said, if only there were a mediator who was able to put his hand upon both of us, myself and my God. If only there was such a mediator, then, well, then I would be saved. God has sent such a mediator. And even for this moment, he is demonstrating the salvation of this mediator on his enemy. Pharaoh, 
The Pharaoh is, is plagued. The Pharaoh is in a time of trial and of difficulty. And he's, he is absolutely beset with these frogs. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's willing to cry out to God and to his mediator. And sure enough, the Lord responds to the words of his mediator, interceding even for his enemy. And the frogs disappear. Frogs died out from the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. It's this lingering reminder that this was no dream. The land stank. But God responded to the voice and the intercession of the mediator Moses in this way. Now, unfortunately, we end this section in verse 15. And when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And this demonstration of power, and this demonstration of the mediatorship that it worked, we also see the demonstration of the confirmation of the words at the initiative of God, the sovereignty of God, just as the Lord had said, he's not going to listen ultimately. He's going to harden his heart. All of these things perfectly confirmed. Because you see, the Lord was not in the hands of Pharaoh like all these other gods, whether the the cat-faced dog or the cat-faced god or the dog-faced god or the fish-faced god or whatever. It was Pharaoh in the hands of the living God. There is no one like our God. There are a few applications of these things. The first one is to praise God for his power. Praise God for his power. Because we need it, don't we? You know, I, I want us to understand that we need the power of God. That's sort of what I was saying this morning. That's what I don't, I, I mean, I find the, the liberal Jesus contemptible for lots of reasons. Uh, but one of them is just simply that uh, he doesn't look like he's going to be able to, to save me when I'm really in trouble. If we're having a pleasant conversation at Starbucks or something, maybe the, the liberal Jesus is okay. But if I'm in a firefight in the stand, I'm not calling the liberal Jesus because he cannot help me. Okay, if we're, forget about a firefight, what if if our house is on fire? Is is he the sort of man that you want to come rescue you, to come with his axe and knock down the, the front door and all the rest of it? Or to bring the jaws of life to your car that's been wrecked? Or any of these situations in which you really absolutely need help? Does he have the power? Does he have the gumption to do what is necessary to save you? The answer is no. Well, praise God, we, 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 are, we are in the hands of an almighty God. We, we have before us, we have available an unlimited power of the true and living God who makes all of these things that I've mentioned and any other example that I could possibly mention of, of those who are given sort of powers to rescue people makes all of those things pale in comparison. He is able to rescue those of which there is no hope, absolutely no hope. I hope you understand that, humanly speaking, we are absolutely without help. Again, the liberal Jesus, he only works because the liberal God, the the liberal religion is one that diminishes sin so much that we're not dead we don't even have a terminal disease. We just have a cold. We have a sniffle. And Jesus can, and that liberal Jesus can come wipe our nose a little bit. The reality is we, are, have, we have a terminal disease. 
The reality is that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, and only the power, the unlimited power of the living God can make us rise from the dead. We are there as corpses, and you say, who can, who can bring these to life? That's what the Lord said. You remember to Ezekiel, in the valley of the, the dry bones. They're, they're dead, they're dry, there's nothing there, there's no life. Who can make these bones to live? And the answer is, well, you must know, Lord. God can do it. And we need him to do that. We praise God for his power. Don't forget about that when you're in trouble. Don't forget about it when, when the things, the world sort of comes closing in around you and you imagine that there's no escape. You remember that God brings these things about in order that he might demonstrate his power, that you might know that there is none like your God. We praise God for his power. Secondly, we praise God for his sovereignty. Praise God for his sovereignty. You know what? We have to have this. We have to have his sovereignty. Because on our own, we would never seek him. We know that. See, that's, that's the problem, isn't it? It's our hearts. We don't even have the, the will to. We don't even have the desire for God. We don't have the desire to come to Jesus. And after we, have the, after we come to Jesus, we very rarely seem to have the desire to to obey him. God has a sovereignty. He has a plan. And we praise God that he does call his people irresistibly to salvation. And we praise him for it. Isn't that better? Isn't that more wonderful? Just think of how we diminish God if we say, no, actually, this was my idea. How we diminish God. No, we say that he even acted with regard to an enemy because we were enemies of God. And he works to overcome all of our opposition, all of our unbelief, all of our rebellion. He works against all of these things. And in his goodness and grace and mercy, he calls us with, with his love. He woos us to himself through the almighty power of his Holy Spirit, yes. But all in accordance with his own sovereign plan. And so that if we're saved, we don't say... Isn't it wonderful how I a little bit smarter, a little bit more receptive, a little bit more faithful than my neighbors? We say, no, we praise God for his sovereign determination to bring us to salvation. We praise God for his power. We should praise God for his sovereignty. We should praise God maybe more than all of that for his mediatorship, that he has sent a mediator to do this work. Because we're no different really than the people of Israel. We think of God and and all of his almighty power and perfect sovereignty, and we quake, we shake in our boots, because he is higher than, than we are. And he, praise God, has sent his son to be in human flesh to live among us. He has become our high priest. He has experienced all the things that we do. We have, he has come in the flesh. He remains in the flesh to intercede for us. He is our mediator. He, was willing, he laid down his life for us. He is risen for us. He intercedes for us. Isn't it wonderful that we have such a mediator? It would be a marvelous thing in some sense to know this all-powerful God, this sovereign God, but you know what? All we'd have in a perfectly sovereign, a perfectly powerful God is the God of Islam, once again. No, he sent a mediator who is his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this God of the Bible, the one true and living God, 
He therefore makes himself approachable by even the worst of sinners, and he approaches them. We praise God for his mediator, the Lord Jesus. And fourth and finally, we cannot possibly think of all these idols of the, the land around Egypt or Egypt himself and all the things that could be mentioned without concluding the way we did on Wednesday, which is with the last verse from 1 John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Isn't it repulsive? Aren't idols repulsive? But when we think then of, of Pharaoh, we think of his priests, we think of the dog God and the cat God and the fish God and all the rest of them, isn't it repulsive? Isn't it something that we want to turn away from? I hope we do. Doesn't it all pale in comparison to the one true and living God? Hasn't he, hasn't he shown you that there is none like the Lord God of Israel? I hope he has. And brothers and sisters, don't turn to idols. Now, the Lord wouldn't have said this if he didn't know that we were tempted to it. We are tempted to idols. But the command, the warning, the urging, the urging is keep yourselves away from them. Make the Lord God, make this your, life, your bread, make this your, your drink, to drink in, to consume the word of God that we see just how huge, just how enormous, just how stupendous is our God, that we might continually know the lesson. You know, Pharaoh was taught that once. And if you ask, so Pharaoh, how, what are you thinking now after these frogs have invaded your house this way and there's nowhere you can go, not even the kneading bowl inside of your private chamber is without frogs. What, what do you think now? You're right, Moses, there is none like the Lord your God. You said you were going to show me and sure enough, you showed me. He knew that lesson once. But oh, how soon he forgot it. And beloved, do we not sometimes soon forget that? And it is when the image of this enormous true God begins to recede and we forget about him, whether willfully or subconsciously we forget, and then idols start to look a bit more attractive. And we say, that's a pleasant aspect, that particular dog, God. Maybe there's something to that. Brothers and sisters, make the Lord Jesus your meat and drink Meditate upon his word, pray, worship, sing, remind one another when you have the chance that he looms so large that these idols seem ridiculous in comparison like they do right now. May the Lord help us. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what can we say to these things other than to say, forgive us forever, ever entertaining in our hearts or minds any aspect of any idol, indeed any image, even of the true God. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to turn away from these things. You have shown your power, and it is absolutely without limit. You have shown us your sovereignty when we desperately need it. Lord, we would not on our own even seek God. And you have shown us the mediator, of whom Moses was just a type, just pointing us to the one who intercedes on our behalf. And Lord, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, the real Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw this morning. And we are thankful that he is able and he is willing to save us, even the worst of sinners. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would worship him. We pray, Lord, that we would turn to him in all times of trial and trouble and temptation. And Lord, that you would keep us from idols. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.